wanna give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're gonna need help if you wanna make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi everyone, welcome to ECF's Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Anna Alfonso. And I'm Andrew Paul. Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds at Edmonton Community Foundation. These funds are carefully stewarded to generate money that supports charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community. Because it's good to be well endowed. We'd like to start this episode with a huge thank you to the Canadian Online Publishing Awards, where the Well Endowed podcast won gold in the best podcast B2B category last week. We love telling stories about the communities that ECF serves, and we are very fortunate to be able to work with a team of great storytellers. We'd love to give a special shout out to our contributing producers, Scott Lilwall, Aubriana Snow, Emily Rendell Watson, and Theodora McLeod. Thank you all so much. And we also want to thank our former lead producer, Lisa Pruden. She played an instrumental role in shaping this podcast, and we can't say enough about her contributions to the work we do. Okay, shall we continue with the show? Absolutely. All right, Anna, I have a question for you. What is the first thing you think of when I say the word Arctic? Arctic. I think of Arctic cold and polar bears. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's what a lot of us think of. And it just so happens that February 27th is International Polar Bear Day. On this episode, we're putting on our parkas and heading out to learn more about these majestic creatures. We'll meet Dr. Andrew DeRocher, a polar bear biologist from the University of Alberta, to see how polar bears are faring in the changing Arctic. But first, we join our former producer Lisa Pruden's chat with Diane Johnston, one of the founders of the Johnston Wright Polar Bear Fund at Edmonton Community Foundation. This very special fund supports education, research, and conservation efforts for polar bears and other Arctic species. Over to you, Lisa. So, Diane, thank you so much for being with us here today. Well, thanks for having me. Can you introduce yourself for our listeners? So, I'm Diane Johnston, uh, and I've lived in Edmonton all my life and been a part of this wonderful, thriving community and doing all kinds of wonderful things um, along the way and enjoying, uh, enjoying being part of that very much. I love it. And Edmonton is a proud northern city, but today we're talking about even farther north, all the way to the Arctic. Can you tell us what about the Arctic calls to your heart? You know, it's been interesting in in all, um, my life has really been a call to the north in a different way that when I look to where we want to go for holidays, it's never really been to the south of the Caribbean or somewhere hot on a sandy beach. It's been to the mountains, it's been to the snow, it's been skiing, it's been... um, it's just always north for me, and that's where I feel comfortable. And then my husband and I have been doing as much travel to the northern parts that we possibly can. We just did a wonderful trip to the Yukon and had a trip to the Arctic Circle, and it was amazing. That sounds amazing. I've never been to the Arctic Circle. Um, can you tell me about what it looks like and feels like to be present there? Oh, it felt like you were... Absolutely on top of the mountains. You were uh, touching the clouds. 
the time frame that we went, you could still see all the various different beautiful fall colors. And it was just a very peaceful, um, silent moment. There was no one else around us. It was just the big sign and, and our world. It was, it was amazing. Diane and her husband's love of the Arctic inspired them to do their part to protect one of Canada's last frontiers, and they wanted to ensure their support would be long-term. So they reached out to Edmonton Community Foundation and established an endowment fund. So the name of the fund is the Johnston Wright Polar Bear Fund. Um, its purpose is really for education, research, and conservation for the polar bears or other Arctic um, creatures. What inspired you to create that fund? We've been, we've been watching and listening to the world around us for many years, and, and we, we've always had an, an unbelievable appreciation for those majestic creatures called the polar bears. Um, they are majestic. They are powerful. They are so ad amazingly adaptable to their surroundings. They, um, they are just the most amazing things I've ever watched is how they, they live in such a barren, cold world and still thrive and, and make us go. I mean, really, they, I'm in awe with them. Polar bears are the most iconic symbol of the Arctic. And we wanted to learn more about these amazing animals and the type of research that Diane's fund will be supporting. So I put on my parka and set out to the cold, windswept expanse of... University Station. The University of Alberta campus to speak with Dr. Andrew Desrochers. We'll start by having you introduce yourself. Uh, maybe tell us who you are and uh, what you do. Sure, my name is Andrew Desrochers. I'm a professor of biological sciences at the University of Alberta, and I've been here since uh, 2002. And what is it that you study? Well, polar bears are kind of my number one go-to organism, um, and I've been studying them across the Arctic for now about 40 years. But in my research group, we study a diversity of wildlife, most of them with a northern focus, but there are species in Alberta that we also study. But by far, polar bears are the number one the king of the Arctic, as some might say. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I'm I'm a accidental bear biologist and accidental polar bear biologist, but uh, I got into studying bears originally on the west coast of Canada and uh, started out on grizzly bears. And somebody there I was working with had worked on polar bears in Edmonton, and that was in the 1980s. And I was on my way to Edmonton and sort of been here and been away in other places at various times. It's the bears almost kind of chose me. Oh, fair enough. Uh, well, do you remember the first time you made it to the Arctic? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Well, you know, I, I think the big thing for the Arctic is, you know, as Canadians, we always sort of know it's there, but we don't sort of have it front of mind. And so for me, when I first went to the Arctic, it was in 1984, and it was actually over to Churchill, Manitoba. So it's kind of a sub-Arctic environment, but it was nothing like I'd ever seen before. So that was kind of a, a new experience on the shores of Hudson Bay. And then, of course, we're in helicopters and we're catching polar bears within a day of getting there and sort of going from this sort of animal that at that time I'd only ever seen in a zoo to seeing 
one up close and personal and then within days you're now responsible for catching them and it was a learning curve i think then probably the next big transition point for me was actually going into the higher arctic so working out of places like tuktoyaktuk or banks island and then we're working out on the sea ice which is uh it's one thing to see a polar bear on land in churchill which is it's an amazing thing and canadians that get the opportunity to do so should go up to churchill and see them but to be with them out on the sea ice is a totally different experience because that's where they make their living. You know, it's one thing to go visit somebody when they're on holidays from their work, but it's another thing to go visit them when they're at work and doing what they're doing for a living. And that's kind of the distinction there because polar bears on land are really just waiting for sea ice to come back so they can go back to hunting. And then the springtime out on the ice is also when the mating season is going on. And so there's lots of interesting dynamics going on there. Speaking of the sea ice and, you know, they're, they're doing hunting, they're using things like, uh, what is it, still hunting, they're waiting around the air holes for the seals, uh, and that's where they get a large amount of their, like, annual energy budget. Can you tell us a little bit about how polar bears, uh, like, their feeding habits and how it is that they, you know, can survive those yearly cycles? Yeah, well, they for a polar bear, one way to think about them is, you know, we think about them as being a carnivore. And that is actually a bit of a misnomer because in reality, it's the blubber of seals that really makes it possible for polar bears to exist. And so when a, a polar bear kills a seal, they're not really there for the meat. They don't want to eat the muscle. They eat very little of the muscle. What they do is they peel them open almost like a banana and then scoop out that layer of icing, which is the blubber, uh, and that's the high caloric content. And that's what makes it possible to be a polar bear. So you don't have to kill a lot of seals, but you have to kill enough seals that you can get that fat. And that fat goes onto into their own fat cells, almost unmodified. And so to put it into perspective, you can have a 500 kilogram polar bear kills a big seal, which could be easily two or 300 kilos. Uh, and then it can eat 20% of its own body mass in a single meal. So we've got a 100 kilograms of fat going into that bear just from that one seal. And then over 90% of that fat goes right into their own fat cells, almost unmodified. So the way I think about polar bears making a living out there is they're basically a fat vacuum. The caveat for a polar bear is that seals are really only accessible when there's sea ice and mainly in the springtime because that's when the seals are giving birth to their pups and that's their mating, mating season as well. And that just makes the seals more vulnerable during that period. And so that's really the crux of the matter is they've got to get fat in that springtime because they're well adapted to going periods of time without food, but there are limits to that period of time. And of course, if you're fatter, you're going to be able to go longer without food. And those periods of time, as we have all heard, uh, are getting longer and longer as the climate warms and the sea ice uh, recedes uh, quicker and takes longer to come back. That's exactly the, the challenge for polar bears. And the simplest way to put it is it's a habitat loss issue that's associated with a warming Arctic. And the Arctic is warming three to four times faster than lower latitude areas. And so it, it's a simple question of is their habitat going to be there long enough in a year for them to complete this life cycle that they need? And so the concerns we've got is with an earlier breakup, we're taking away that prime hunting season. And then if the ice doesn't come back soon in the fall, it's not a main hunting 
time of year for the bears, but they are getting some seals and maintaining their condition through the winter till the spring. But if that period gets too long, we just don't see polar bears persisting in an area. And so we're seeing these sorts of challenges in some populations, but not all. So it's, it's again, there's no one size fits all when we talk about the status of polar bears. It depends on which area we're talking about. And we actually talk about 19 different populations of polar bears across the Arctic. And we know that some are not doing well, some are doing just fine, and some might actually be getting slightly better conditions with warming in the Arctic, just a little bit lighter ice conditions, a little bit more primary productivity. But again, it, it varies depending on which area we're looking at. Are you seeing any sort of adaptation that's happening in the bear's behavior as the Arctic continues to change? Yeah, it's a it's a really challenging thing to know because one of the things is you think about, well, polar bears are an obligate predator of seals. We know that, but they'll eat almost anything that's near them. And that can be anything from a, from something that's just dead naturally. Like we've seen them in the Arctic in various places feeding on, on dead fin whales, dead sperm whales. They can hunt whales, like the smaller whales, like narwhal and beluga at certain times of the year. They'll go into bird colonies and eat birds, for example, and bird eggs. And they've always done this. It's more just exploiting behaviors that they already had, but they're just using them more often. And so this is not really adaptation, but just sort of what we call behavioral plasticity, that they can exploit things that are in their toolkit already. Um, so as the habitat is changing, um, how is that affecting sort of the movement in the territory of polar bears? Um, are you seeing some interesting things sort of develop uh, on that front? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Polar bears are real homebodies, you know, and so some people think, well, you know, as the ice disappears from one area, they'll just go somewhere else. The problem with that sort of scenario is we just don't see it in our data. So we track a lot of polar bears in populations, and they basically, if this is where they were born, that's where they're going to die. They really are homebodies. They are taught certain migration patterns during that period of time that they're with their mother, which is about two and a half years. And so it's really the sort of place where you don't want to make a mistake. You don't want to be in the wrong place as the ice is breaking up, or you could end up and depending on the population, you could end up drifting into the North Atlantic or the North Pacific and far away from sea ice or any sort of safety. So we don't know how they navigate, which is really kind of amazing. But we've got bears that, you know, in Hudson Bay travel 800 kilometers straight across the bay, wander all over that bay, and then come back to exactly the same little point on land year after year. So they're ex exquisitely well adapted to navigating in this featureless environment because um, it's always changing out on the sea ice. You can't sort of say, oh, turn left at that cliff because uh, there are no cliffs in a lot of their range. But we're not seeing that. So what we're currently seeing is, is that the changes in the environment are re resulting in changes in the basic demography. So we're seeing lower reproductive rates as a consequence of the bears not being as fat as they used to be. And we're also seeing lower survival rates and typically in the very youngest bears and the very oldest bears. Those are the more vulnerable parts of the population. And ultimately, if you're not getting as many cubs being recruited and you're not having as uh, high a survival rate, 
eventually that translates into a decline in population abundance. And we have that in three populations that are in Canada. Um, and so we have some concerns that other populations might eventually start to go into that decline state as well. Yeah. Uh, well, how are polar bears in Canada uh, doing overall right now? Yeah, so under our Species at Risk Act, we consider polar bears to be a species of special concern. And so that means that they're not really threatened yet. But if you look internationally, under the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, they're listed as a vulnerable species, and they're listed as a threatened species in the United States. So it varies a bit by jurisdiction. And, and part of it depends on the assessment criteria that different jurisdictions use. And ours, I think, is a little bit more conservative in Canada compared to the U.S. system. Uh, and when the U.S. declared polar bears as a threatened species, um, they actually did that on a global basis. And their best assessments were that by about mid-century, we would see a, a loss of up to two-thirds of the global polar bears uh, across the whole Arctic, and that would include Canada. You mentioned earlier that a lot of folks, like, for instance, we're in Edmonton right now. Arctic is, you know, we know it's there. Most of us probably haven't been there. Why is it that we should be concerned about what's happening up there and uh, species like the polar bear? Well, you know, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. And, and it's, again, uh, polar bears are really what I consider sort of um, an accidental icon of climate change. I mean, nobody set out to monitor polar bear populations to assess the effects of climate change. Now, we do that now, but when the early days of polar bear research, it was mainly because we have a harvest in Canada. We still harvest about five, 600 bears, mainly by Inuit living in the Arctic, a sustainable harvest. And so what happened is we were estimating the abundance of polar bears to understand how many bears could be safely harvested from these different populations. And so what happened is as we got the satellite record, we could start to put together what's happening with sea ice and what sea ice scientists are telling us about the trajectory of sea ice going forward. We could put that with our polar bear data and say, okay, we've got a a species that's an obligate user of sea ice, the sea ice is disappearing, what are the consequences of that? And so I think that polar bears, the Arctic will still be there without them. It wouldn't be the Arctic as we think about it. Ecosystems will respond and change. I mean, if you look across Alberta, I mean, massive areas of it used to be dominated by bison. So we don't have bison, we don't have you know, the plains grizzly bear or plains wolves anymore. So, but there's still a functioning ecosystem uh, there and we just change parts. And what we're seeing in the Arctic right now is that we're shifting that ecosystem to one that's being more dominated over time by species from the North Atlantic and North Pacific. Uh, we're seeing killer whales moving in and ultimately without sea ice, killer whales will move in as the top predator in those systems. So it's not like an end of the world scenario to, to lose polar bears. I would be disappointed. I think a lot of people would be. But I think they are an indicator of larger changes that are going on. And I think more and more people are seeing those changes closer to home. And so polar bears have came out as an early indicator species because we had the data. And it wasn't that polar bears were more important necessarily than any other species, but it was one where we could clearly say, look, there are issues with this species. And by association and simple deduction, we can say, 
there's other species that are going to be affected as well. Uh, the prey of polar bears are also reliant on the presence of sea ice. So ring seals, which are sort of their smaller meal deal up to about 70 kilos, and then bearded seals up to about 400 kilos, the big meal deal. Both of those species are only found where there's sea ice. And so you take away the ice, you lose those species as well. The ecosystem changes. So it's not just polar bears. And, and I think really by the time polar bears get into big trouble, we're going to be dealing with a lot of other environmental issues that are probably more focused on humans rather than wildlife. So it was a bit of an early warning for many people that things are changing and they're changing faster than we expected. This sense of urgency is what pushed Diane and Peter to set up the Johnston Wright Polar Bear Fund. Let's return to Lisa and Diane's conversation. So the name of your fund is after the polar bears, but the purpose of your fund extends even into other forms of conservation for the Arctic. What is it about this environment that you find so important to invest in for the future? The environment itself, the Arctic world, is, is unique to our world as well. And I don't think we know enough about it. We need to do more education. We need to do more research. We need to conserve, preserve. Um, and in order to do those things, we need to, that research helps us understand what it's all about, and it's changing fast. So we only have a window of opportunity to learn what it is today in order to adapt what we may need to do in, in our world to change our footprint to ensure that it's there for tomorrow. And so you and your husband, Peter, started this fund in April of 2022. Mm -hmm. So we are... Over a year, we're coming up on two years. How has your fund grown and how has it been feeling to watch it? So the fund has grown really exponentially, I think. Um, we are gifting. We are just over $20,000, so we are ready for grant gifting. And it's really been just the two of us at this moment. We are so ready to talk to the world and our network and, and everywhere else about how wonderful this fund is. Uh, has made us feel and to bring some of that passion to them um, and have them give them the opportunity to also give back in ways that they may not have thought of before and just a little bit differently in what the work is that we can do here in Edmonton here just a little bit further north of us um, Rather than it's more of an international feeling, it's really I want to keep it in the community. I want to um, ensure that because this is where we live, we need to take care of that. But when you look to the future and you're thinking 5, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, what, what do you see happening I guess what I would hope that has happened is that the fund has grown to a state where it can actually grant to some of those larger projects. Research and conservation are not cheap. Uh, they're quite expensive. And in order to get that understanding that we need, we don't have, I don't think, the time. So this is why it's important for us right now to start doing more outreach, get more funding in, uh, donations in, so that we can grant more and learn more to, to make sure that we do have polar bears, say, 50 years from now, right? Is there anything you wanted to add or anything you wanted to get to that perhaps I didn't? I think that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of 
we're in the big city and we don't touch and feel these creatures on an everyday basis. But we need to care about that which we can't see on, on and can't touch for the reasons of understanding how that could have cause and effect on the world around us. If we don't have the Arctic in the way we have it today, that's going to have a, an effect on how we live, even in our big cities today. So looking and understanding that whole area of the world in whether it's the, the creatures that live there or the land itself or the the ice and, and the water and how that all plays into our whole ecosystem, we may not be prepared for what the future holds for us. And I think we want to be. Diane, thank you so much again for sharing your time with us and telling us about your fun. Oh, thanks for having me. I so enjoy talking about it. Thank you to Lisa Pruden and Andrew for bringing us this story. And thank you to Diane Johnston and Dr. Andrew Durocher for sharing their time with us. If you'd like to learn more about the Johnston Wright Polar Bear Fund and Dr. Durocher's research, you can find those links in our show notes. And you'll also be able to find links to the latest on our blog and to upcoming granting deadlines and funding opportunities at Edmonton Community Foundation. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for sharing your time with us. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please share it with everyone you know. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This is a great way to support the show and help new listeners find us. Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Anna Alfonso. And Andrew Paul. Until Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is edited by Andrew Paul. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Special thanks to Octavo Productions for our theme music. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. 